Hey everybody, it's Richard Harrison, Scott Lease with another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. Super excited today to have our next academia leader uh, join us on the podcast. Second time we've ever done this, Dr. Howard Dover from the University of Texas, Dallas, um, who teaches sales, right? Like we talk about this a lot. There's not a lot of sales schools um, out there. So we're really excited to talk about all kinds of things with, with, with uh, Dr. Dover. So welcome and thanks for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Glad to meet you. Glad to be on the podcast. Yeah, I think, I think the first thing is, so what is, what is your doctorate in? Like let people know sort of your frame of reference. Okay. So Scott's going to enjoy this after, after we heard that his dad's a professor. So my degree is in quantitative methodologies in, in management. So I, so what I, does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, UTD is, is known globally for quants. We, we produce quants in our marketing department. So I was taught statistics, mathematics, and econometrics. I was lit, one of the courses I took literally was jet propulsion, how to take a rocket and get it into space because the same technique can be used to pulse advertising and get an optimal return. And so I, I never studied behavioral. I never studied management. I only studied math, statistics, and econometrics. Wow. So sales really is rocket science. Is that what I'm hearing? It, it, yes. Well, <laughs> well and then, you know, it's interesting when I, when I went, as I've, as I've gone to academic conferences in the quant space, which I don't do very often now, um, I, if I have my little tag and it says I'm from UT Dallas, people look at me and go, oh, what do you do there? And I say, I run our sales center. And they they almost do a double take and they go, wait a minute. I thought you said you were at UT Dallas. I said, yes, I'm at UT Dallas and we, we have a sales center. They go, why? <laughs> so how did you, how did you get, so how did you go? I mean, so where did sales come in, in your life? Like, were you a sales guy, you know, growing up and as a kid and your first jobs, you were, you were, you were hustling on sales. Like where did those two things come together for you? Well, when I was a kid, um, we were poor. In fact, um, I, I, I got in trouble with my mom one day because she was throwing away junk mail and we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and so I looked at that and I said, mom, if you're not going to use that, can I, can I use it? And she said, okay. And so I went around the corner and I sold our junk mail to our neighbors. And I was so excited, came back home. And I was like to mom, hey, hey mom, I made like two bucks. And she goes, how'd you make $2? And I said, because I sold that stuff you were throwing away. And what, she what said, did you sell like a, a coupon catalog or something? No, no. I just took the junk my mom was throwing away and the neighbors were so nice to, you know, cause they were like, Oh, that's the Dover kid. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll buy that for, for a buck, you know, just cause they were like, that's cute. Um, so my mom said, you got to go give the money back. So I was pretty sheepish. I went to my two neighbors, gave the money back. And, and then I said, so mom, if, if I give them something of value, can I sell stuff? And she went and she just like, Oh yes. And she goes, but you got to tell me what it is. I said, well, I'm going to do a play in the front yard and, and I'm going to sell tickets to my play I went around the same neighbors. And I think I got like four or five bucks that time. I was like, Hey, I got something going on here. And then we, we held the play and nobody showed up. And I was like, wow, this is like a money machine. Cause I can go sell <laughs> tickets and I never have to you know, perform. And, um, my mom, I, I didn't have to take the money back that time because she, she, she opened the door that I had a value prop. 
And I, it just moved on from there. I did newspapers. I, you know, I just, if I wanted stuff as a kid, I had to sell. I had to go sell to get stuff. And, and you know, my dad was a good hard worker. He, he worked as a chef uh, for the army for 30 years. And then he worked as a janitor when I was, you know, he, he was forced into retirement. And then he worked as a janitor for most of my memory of life. But, you know, he never made a lot of money. I mean, was, we, we, had, you know, we had clothes, we had food, but if you want to do anything, you had to go, I had to go sell newspaper. I sold newspapers almost every night of my life as a kid. That's how I got to go to Disneyland. It's how I got to go to ballparks, how I got the backpacks that I got to use. It's how I got to do all my scouting trips. It's, I mean, if I wanted to do anything, I had to go raise the money. Wow. Did you, is that sort of also, so, so what about academia, right? So here it is, you figured out early in life, you can sell, you can make money. Certainly back then, you know, the, the thought of a degree wasn't necessarily required for sales. It still isn't no. now. Right. So, so what even lured you into, I want to keep learning and, and going in that direction? Well, I, uh, after college, I barely made it through college, but I, I, I started a sales company. I worked for the Salt Lake Tribune and Deseret News and I sold all the subscription sales um, outside of telemarketing was my contract. So anything door to door, or we did actually a storefront intercept model, um, sampled, sampled papers at a grocery store. And I, I was making really good money um, while I was going to school. So that actually was kind of distracted me a lot. Um, I almost didn't make it through that. My GPA showed I was just, you know, barely made it. Um, but when I finished, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then I kind of lost focus on the ball and I lost my, my client. So 95% of my revenue was coming from the one client and they, they, they kind of like got tired of me and, uh, effectively canceled my contract. And that was a really interesting moment in my life. I'm a fairly religious guy and I don't want to get overly religious, but, uh, you know, when I hit moments like that, I, I did pray and was one of the few moments in my life where I really felt that I got a clear answer. And I, I was, I was holding my baby and it was my, my fourth child and he was a baby and was crying. And I was sitting in this church in Utah and I, I was actually closing out. I, I'd gone to Utah from Oregon to close out my offices to shut down my company. And so I, I was pretty emotional. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of this really pivotal moment to say, what am I going to do next? And at that moment, I, I just felt this impression, you need to go get your PhD to accomplish what I need you to do in life. But not now, because I wasn't financially set. I would have completely wiped out my family financially if I'd done it right then. So I ended up working, of course, this makes complete sense. I went to go work for the state of Oregon for five years as a systems analyst. <laughs> and it's not that- winding road into well, it's, it's not that strange because when I owned my sales company, I designed databases that increased the performance of my sales org. So I, I was designing data systems because you know I was an entrepreneur trying to increase efficiency of my sales org. And I found that if I looked at my data and, and then projected where the sales were coming and then 
plan better, I could have a 20, 30% boost in productivity. And I kept doing that. So obviously I taught myself how to code. So a friend of mine worked for the state of Oregon and said, I need a coder. And one of our other friends like, you know, he coded like a bunch of stuff for his business. And so I went to go work there. And, and for five years, I learned how to design data systems for the state of Oregon. So I took full life cycle processes that were not automated and automated them um, back to this concept of efficiency again. So I was really getting good and I was waking up at night in cold sweats with, with, with code flying through my head. And I was just like, man, I'm not happy. I'm really good at what I do, but I'm really not happy. And that was the moment I went, you know what? Once again, you know, prayer is a big part of my life. And God said, well, you know, now's the time. I was, by that point, I was debt-free. paid off all the debts of the business. And I applied to 19 different business schools around the country. And um, strangely enough, there were three that accepted me. One of them was UT Dallas, and it's a modeling school. And I, I kind of said, well, you know, I'm really not that cute, so I, I probably shouldn't do that. Um, but it's mathematical modeling. And so it really didn't have anything to do with sales. But the first job I got after I got my degree at UT Dallas was a university out in Maryland called Salisbury. And the lady who was teaching sales was like, I'm done. You, you as the new faculty, you got to teach that sales class. And so I started teaching sales and I taught it like a quant guy at first because it was easy. And then the great recession happened. But how do you, so this it's so interesting that you started with all the numbers and the, and the quant of everything is I the exact opposite. I, I didn't, I think I had one economics course in college and that's it. And I studied psychology and religion. So I have a BA in psychology and a minor in religious studies. Is there, what am I trying to, trying to get at? How do you teach somebody the numbers side of sales who has no experience with that part and, and only has experience with the sort of social part or the psychology part of selling or the instincts. Because this, this was something that it took me, at least, a while to, to learn. So I, I have to tell you that I'm not sure that I know. So that's the, because when I was at Salisbury University and I started teaching sales, I had the social people that campus is 30 minutes away from Ocean City, and it's like a party. And so I had the social people, but not necessarily, um, you know, it was, it was an equal distribution in the area of intelligence and, and hard work and focus on academia. Then I moved back to UT Dallas, and every one of these kids are just brainy smart, just knows the grindstone, um, high SAT scores, high ACT scores, they're kind of geeky. Um, and I see, I say that with, with love. Um, we actually lean into our geekiness at UTD. And, and so I, what I've actually learned is exactly the opposite of what you asked me, Scott, is how do you teach really intelligent quant thinkers how to sell? And that's kind of been our differentiating factor in the marketplace is that we're kind of the, the tech quant school of the UT system. And we teach 
kids how to be socially capable of selling. And, and so we kind of create unicorns. We create these highly technical, IBM yeah. hires a lot of our students, a lot of the tech sector comes after our students because we, we have students who can understand the tech and the, the ROI piece. And we have to train them on this, the, the social and the, the structure of communicating piece. Why, why did it take so long for academia to accept sales as something that worth studying? You, you, you assume they have. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So, so, um, How many universities are we up to that offer any kind of degree in sales and selling or certification? Do you know the answer to that? So, so recognized by the University Sales Center Alliance would be over 60. When I, when I joined the University Sales Center Alliance, there was like 40 a few years ago. So okay. there's actually a pretty big uptick. It, there's another organization called the Sales Education Foundation. They put out an annual report every year, and I think there's over 200 universities in that magazine. And that would be that they have some classes and a dedicated faculty. So where are we in the, the second one? Hold on. What was the second one again? With the numbers or the organization? Not the Alliance one, the one with the... With sales, the sales Education Foundation. So, so they, they, they put out an annual uh, magazine that lists the top sales schools in the country. And anybody could Google it and find a, a, a university that's, that's trying to build a curriculum around sales. So we, so we haven't fully been embraced then. Maybe we're in the infancy or the toddler phase. Why is, yeah. it, why is it taking so long? There was... There was no courses on selling that any of my friends who were in business school in the late 90s, uh, you know. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on you for a second because you said that your dad said that you need to refer to him as doctor, right? So yes. I think you know the answer to the question you just asked because academia has a tendency of Ivy Towerism. And this idea of, of being elite and aloof and, and leading with thought. And then you bring in this concept of sales, which is very practitioner-based. It's very, it's almost like factory work, you know? It's, yeah. It's, yeah. You know that's, that's for the technical schools. That's for the community colleges. That's not for an elite academic institution. And so you have department so here's here's your your struggle either you have a dean who realizes it needs to be done or you have a chair in a department that realizes it needs to be done but you need both those and then you need a department that won't kill the salesperson the sales faculty so um i will be on the positive side when i came back to ut dallas both the chair and the dean were saying we need to do this. But as I got inside, the dean said, hey, for 17 years, I've been beat up by sales executives who told me what an idiot I am for not having a sales program. So finally, we have a guy who's quant, who knows, who, who can teach it in a way that's UTD-like, instead of grabbing somebody off the street and making us maybe look off-brand. Do we do, do we have enough momentum now where you expect the trend to continue up? I think it's going up. The question is, um, it's a struggle. 
you know, one of, one of my dear friends in Scotland had been doing this for 20 years, had received national acclaim. In fact, um, uh, gal, okay, I'm going to move off that because I can't come up with the guy's name, the, the other name. But he received even a major endowment from um, Neil Rackham. And Neil Rackham actually endowed this particular program with, with an institute and money to be the Neil Rackham. And, and the new dean came in and said, yeah, you know what? We're not going to focus on sales anymore. And cut the program to shreds. Just stopped it in its tracks. And he had been doing it for 20 years. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, so yes, I think we have some momentum. But do we still have challenges? Yeah, I think we're, it's a battle. It's a battle to play the game. For, the, for those who are listening and are, and are, you know, vaguely familiar with this concept, you hire a student who comes out of your program, right? You attempt to, what does that student know, right? What, what is, you know, like, like I know, Alex, you know, we, we know, I know Lexi Liebom, right? Who's one of your students. Uh -huh. um, what, is, what does somebody know when they get out of this, this program? So let me, let me answer a little bit strangely, okay? Um, I, I think the bigger question would be what do they not, what do they not know? So um, the number one producer in North America from Qualtrics and Adobe are from our program for the BDR role in the last year. Um, most of our alumni are operating, if they're, uh, if they were performing well in our boot camp, they tend to be performing at number, and many of them are at multipliers of the average performance of their organization. So I, I guess what I'd like to say is we, when we collaborate with an IBM or we collaborate with an AT&T or an Adobe um, or Lennox Corporation, we literally sit down with their executive leadership and their sales enablement and their and we get an idea of whether our curriculum is lined up with what they feel an entry-level person needs to know on day one, and we then bring it back into our curriculum. So, are they learning, yeah, but specifically though, are they learning? And, and not that you may or not that you may teach them just one, but are they learning spin selling and band and the history of these things? Are they are they practicing each of these so they can truly say have experience with it? Like, what are they? What kind of book knowledge they come out with versus the life knowledge? Okay, so standard USCA would be that, that students have an intro and advanced course available to them and then maybe three, so total of four courses and 12 credit hours. So in our particular program, what we have is we have intro, we have advanced, and we have digital prospecting, which is, you know, most universities have a CRM. We do prospecting so that we actually make it more um, you actually got to do it. In our program, um, we modeled a lot after the University of Houston when we started, where they require every one of their students to have a quota and complete that quota to graduate. We don't, we're not as rigid with them on the performance because of the fact that we don't have a 20-year history with a 20-year database like they do, um, but we're getting there. We're eight years in with an eight-year database. So <clears throat> we teach the concepts we teach spin, we teach challenger, um, we teach Miller-Hyman, we teach, um, you know, I, I bring in stuff from, from uh, you know, 
Mark Hunter and from Trish Bartuzzi. I mean, I, I consume material. You, you know, Richard, you and I have seen each other at AISP events. Listen, if it's valuable at AISP, it's in the curriculum within the next six months. Um, so my students are using Sales Stack. They're using Salesforce CRM. They're using Navigator. They're 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 given. Um, they're suggested to read Jamie Sanks's Social Selling Mastery book. We use the concept of social selling aggressively within the program. Up until this year, they were actually given a grade on their SSI score, but LinkedIn's retiring that. Um, but then they're also graded on the performance to quota in every class. Every class in the program in the undergrad has a quota and is a major portion of their grade. And what are, the, what are they selling? What, are they selling so the course? To so it depends on the course. So in the intro course, I'm selling myself and I have to do 10 informational interviews. So pretty, pretty light, right? That's, that's not too bad. But it's actually building their network and their career and introducing social selling. Um, when they go into advanced, then they have to, we do the sales leadership summits. We do two, twice a year and we sell memberships to individuals and we sell partnership packages to companies to attend that event. And we sell vendor packages to vendors. And we do that primarily, I mean, there's some fundraising component to it, but primarily we're doing it so the students can learn to sell and have a legitimate opportunity. They have to generate $1,000 in revenue in the semester um, if they want an A. They have to have, book a certain amount of meetings each month if they want an A. They have coaching goals. We use the uh, Exvoyant technology to provide coaching goals on a weekly basis with every one of our students. So they have activity activities, they have results, and they have coachability. And we do it in an iterative process where we understand in the first three weeks weeks, four weeks, they're going to fail at most of the stuff they're going to do. So then we let, we almost bake, we bake failure in with a design-based model. And then we iterate five to six times in a semester through phases and process and products. And so when they come out of that, they can literally say, I did sell in my, not, not only did I learn what social selling was, I had to social sell to get my meetings. I had to learn how to do a meeting so that I could open pipeline. I had to learn how to close to close pipeline. And here are my numbers. Here's my coachability score. Here's my quote attainment score. Here are my competency spaces in seven to eight different competencies that I've been measured on. What would you like to talk about when you want to hire me? You want to know my weaknesses? You want to know my strengths? Because I know what they are. So you're, <clears throat> you baked failure into the, the curriculum and the model. Do you spend time discussing the mindset and, and the resiliency required to, to survive and last in the, in the sales world? How are you preparing the students for, you know, a 99% failure rate, let's say, for example? It's a good question. I, and I'm going to have to be honest with you, Scott. I think formally I would say I'm, I'm probably more blind to that than I should be. I think indirectly, I'm not blind to it at all. So when I walk into a classroom, I, I know the data points when I walk in. So when I say, so when you teach students how to do something, you get a bell curve, right? So you're gonna get 
10% that just nail it right as you asked them, 20% that get close, and then you get the rest of the distribution, right? Now in sales, that means that 70% of your org really sucks and fails, right? Because they're not gonna get the outcome if they don't do the things you suggested in the way you suggested. If they don't, they, if, you know, if they, they, they reach out to Richard and they say, hey Richard, you wanna come to Rookie Preview? Richard's <laughs> gonna go, what? What is, what, do you, what is that? He's gonna ignore it, right? He's not gonna go, hey, wow, this is a cool UTD student who asked me to go to something. Yeah, I'll coach him on it though. Yeah, yeah. You can have yeah. him. So have, it's, feel free to have your students cold call, call us. We'll be glad to give them some tips. Well, we, some you tips. guys will have to give me your, your emails and we'll put you in the database. So um, Chad Burmeister got, got a couple of kids going after him this last time and it was kind of funny. He said, send two after me and I'll, I'll buy from the best. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, it's, <clears throat> so we, we know based off of our past, I was telling you before we turned everything on that we, we were, we were learning some things about the difference between millennials and Z's. And one of the things we learned in the process was that, you know, more and more of the students were failing in the project of quota attainment. And so one of the things I, I, I was taught from one of my friends at Bryant University whose name is Dr. Stephanie Boyer, she uses design thinking in everything. Ashley Welsh does as well. I mean, they're just two brilliant people in how to teach and, and, and really create exciting ways to learn. And so we literally would say, okay, let's call alumni in the first two weeks because they know what's coming. Just like if, if, if you were an alumni of our program, Scott and, and Richard, you go, Okay, they're doing live selling now. Oh boy, that, that email sucked. <laughs> and so they're more likely to say, hey, uh, yeah, you need to do that. You need to do that better. Um, so knowing that the students are not going to take the effort because it's a homework assignment, they don't think it's as important as it needs to be. They think they can just wing it, right? I mean, so they haven't learned the material. They're just kind of getting it done, checking the box. And so then we come back and we do huddles, right? So we say, okay, wins, let's celebrate our wins and let's celebrate our losses. Who had a win? Who had a loss? What happened? And, and then we start cross-pollinating and then we iterate again and teach a little bit more, right? Well, the, maybe we need to look at ideal customer profile. How many people fit this profile? Did you understand what their needs were? And so then we go deeper and then we say, okay, now go out and try it again. Well, maybe this time we go with renewals of people who've been members for a couple of years. So once again, these people know the model that's happening. And so they're more likely to be friendly instead of hostile, although sometimes they're hostile. <clears throat> and, then, and then they come back in and they have, maybe we have a 30, 40% success rate from a meeting perspective, not a sales perspective. And the students come back in. By the time we get to the end of the semester, we're sitting at an 80 to 90% 90 meeting success factor in the final iterations. And we're getting 80 to 90% of the students opening business and closing business every semester. Up until COVID, I had two semesters of 100% closing in my program. Wow. Um, but it takes knowing that you're going to get a bell curve and then saying, let me get the failure, the 70% failure. Let me get that in the first 30 days. Because then they're oh, going to I know a lot of I know a lot of sales works that can't get 100% of their people to close every single uh, quarter. Well, I, I think it's because, the, anyway, iterative, 
there's a lot of people, there's a lot of concepts in training. And the challenge is that we often, we let people do stupid very, very long. And so instead of realizing when we teach somebody something, only a certain percentage of them are going to retain. So let them lean into the fact that they're going to do it wrong and then bring them back. Yeah. And let them iterate, let them learn through iteration. What does, what does a VP of sales or a, you know, head of sales development out there right now who's listening to this, this episode, what should they know about the next wave of salespeople that are coming through your program? Well, Florida State did a great study over the last two years. And what they wanted to do was say, they've done two studies. One was on retention. And they, they showed that if you hire a student from a university trained sales program, your retention numbers are lower and your onboarding is faster. So that was a couple of years ago. They also came up with a study that said, what is better? Should you hire an experienced salesperson or should you hire a university trained salesperson? Which one's better? Well, um, the obvious answer is that the experienced salesperson is better in the first year to 18 months. But at 18 months out, this is, this is a really crazy study. 18 months out, the university sales training, trained student actually reaches the same level as the experienced person. 36 months out, it's 3x. 3x in favor of the university trained. 3x in favor of the university trained. My own information from my, my alumni indicate that they're operating between 2x and 10x in year one. But this was a more you know, comprehensive study that was you know, peer-reviewed. Do, you know, the name, do and, you know the name of that study off the top of your head? I will send it if to you. Um, it's, okay. it, Willie Bolander is the author. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. We'll figure it out. That's right. What, um, what about motivation, right? As, as, as we talk about the differences between, you know, Gen X to millennials, is he motivated the same way that, that millennials are or no? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So it's, what, what's that difference? So the, we, we had a little bit of a challenge because we get to see it before you see it because we're at the university. So about three years ago, we started witnessing a drop off in engagement and a drop off in performance. And at first I thought it was, you know, just faculty issues, just trying to you know, bring new people on. But, but then the, the phase actually exacerbated and we saw a drop off and drop off. So what would normally happen is we we're running 70% of our students were actually hitting quota on opening pipeline. Then it got down to 50% and then it got down um, to 30%. And when it got down to 30%, I was like, oh no we got a problem. Something's going wrong here. And, and uh, I, I'm going to repeat this to you guys because I think it's, it's an epiphany moment and it kind of tells this difference is that this one kid who we, we had an internal sales competition and he won the cup. And so he was the best salesperson at UT Dallas. When it got time to go into his live selling piece, he literally said to his professor, well, I've already proven I'm the top salesperson at UT Dallas. Why should I ever have to sell? And so we said, whoa, whoa, our model that was designed for millennials is creating people who um, they're not going after the same incentives. So we actually brought our model back in and 
and looked at it. So millennials kind of work for this recognition concept, but Zs, if you give them false recognition, you will not motivate them at all. In fact, they'll be kind of upset and disengaged very, very quickly. The biggest challenge with Zs is they disengage at a very, very fast rate. So the things that you would do to a millennial and say, hey, I'll give you a little badge if you do this. Hey, I'll give you another badge if you do it again. Hey, I'll give you four badges. And millennials will go, yeah, I want badges. But the Z will go, well, why do you keep giving me a badge for the same thing? How does that help my career? So they're also focused on career, and this one will blow your mind. According to Gartner's research, they're actually coin-operated again. Mm. They're money-motivated. And I think part of that is that they were raised as um, middle schoolers, and they were raised as high schoolers during the Great Depression. I'm, I'm sorry, the Great Recession. Huh. <laughs> but you said you said something about false praise or false recognition yeah well some, is, sometimes what does that mean is that is that the badge thing you're talking about? i'm just trying it's a fun buzzword but i'm trying to grasp well, it when, when i talk to when i talk to senior executives one of the things they kind of bemoan is that i they feel they have to promote the current salespeople about every six months or they're unhappy right a millennial needs to be promoted um have a raise, have a promotion about every six months. And some of them have told me it needs to be about every three months. Yeah, this is, this is, the, this is the salespeople that I would get <clears throat> who hit their quota once and they're like, I'm ready to be a manager now. <laughs> so so a, a lot of companies have designed these stepladder processes that are really the same job, right? But I'm, I'm going to give you, hey, Scott, you've been with us for three months. You've been average, but by golly, you're going to get promoted. Yep. And yep. you're like, we give you wow. a senior title or we give you a 5K yep. raise or something. Yep. So um, I don't know if you guys know Rob Peterson, but Rob Peterson and I did a little event at the Sales Enablement Society meeting. And we, we, we kind of showed the difference because if you do that to a Z, they're going to go, so why did you promote me? And you're going to go, well, because you've been here. Okay, so do I get more responsibility? Well, well no. Do I get more pay? Well, no. So how are you improving my life with this promotion? Well, it's just a promotion. And they'll literally go, well, that's stupid. So it's, it's almost orthogonal to the, the current group. So as, as we, you know, we think we have intergenerational conflict between boomers and Xers and millennials, wait till the Zs come in. Because the Zs are going to out-hustle, out-work. And, and if you don't motivate them, they're just going to leave. They're just going to leave because they're going to get, they're going to, they disengage. They try to do too much a little bit. They're kind of, FOMO is very real with that group and they want to do everything. And they're willing to work really, really hard. Um, so it's, I, I guess, as you guys talk about how do you, you know, work in this mindset. And, and I guess that's the next piece of the challenge is that they will work themselves so hard that they don't throttle and then they get anxiety ridden and they're just, they don't take care of their mental health. And so you almost have to, you can't. Is that, you, is that a role then that the sales leadership has, oh my, has to play with that, that Z? My first iteration in the, um, in the revamp and the morphing of our curriculum, I, I did a lot of things and they didn't throttle themselves. 
And I felt so bad. I mean, I had a third of my class literally just dragging their knuckles on the ground, just slumping. And, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, they're just physiologically blown up. And I felt bad because I did it, right? But I was shocked that they did. We, we asked them to do too much, but they kind of did it all. And I wasn't used to that. Does that make sense? I was like, well, I'm going to ask them to do a lot. And then they're going to do a little piece of that. So I wanted to do them a lot so they'd be successful. I was like, oh my gosh, they, they actually did it. Oh, I got I to gotta modify because I've got Zs instead of millennials right now. I've got to understand that I've got to right size this. I've got to help them understand how to moderate because they don't self-throttle themselves. And yet they'll push themselves to the edge of anxiety and then drop off. And so it, it's tough. I mean, there's a lot of excitement about who they are, but this thing, they're, they're, their quickness to disengage, they, they're quick to move into a space where they, they almost create their own anxiety due to FOMO at an extremely high rate. Um, Gartner's done some really amazing research on this. I spent like a couple of hours with their, their Z expert. They have like five people that have been doing nothing but studying Zs for a decade. And they've got so much data on them, it's amazing. That's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that because I I would not have thought of them as coin operated. I would have thought of them as the natural extension of the millennial, right? Um, they're going to make the millennials have a problem. Yeah, and I, I want to bring one more piece back up to you because we talked about this ahead of time or beforehand was that they, if I remember correctly, please correct me they will disengage from the online stuff faster than millennials because their whole life has already been online. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So a lot of the, if, if you're not helping them understand the purpose of what they're doing and, and how it relates directly to their development, and what they're attempting to achieve, they will disengage completely. They are, sounds they like, some, sounds like our kids, Richard. This sounds yeah, like, I, like our kids. Yeah. <laughs> it is your they, does, yeah. That, does that also mean they need they crave or need more human to human engagement? I don't know. That's I I would I would lean in the ignorant statement of my own view and say I think so. But I, I don't know that I have that scientifically backed up yet. Um I, I just I think one of the things is that we we've really kind of moved very, very far and, and they're just different, but they're fun. My goodness, they're fun to work with. They're, they're just, they're very, they're, they're willing to work for what they get. They want to improve themselves. They, you know, they watch, this group watch their mom and dad work hard. And this is another thing that kind of blows my, my mind. When I knew that there was a shift going on, I do exit interviews with all my students. I do entrance and exit interviews with all my boot camp students. And I usually say, tell me about your 10-year self. And the millennials would never talk about family formation. It's like, yeah, I, I mean, you know, 10 years, you're going to have a dog. and I'm going to have a dog but no kids. I don't, why, why would I get married? About a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I started getting 50 to 70% family formation. And I went, whoa, what's up? This is, a, this is a different group of people. 
I, I've got people literally being willing to tell me in 10 years, I intend to have a family. I intend to have that be the focal point of my life. It's not about me. It's about family. And I'm going to work with a purpose and I have a focus and it's not just me. It's, it's, it's just very, very, once again, very orthogonal to the previous generation. I, in my family, I have a couple of millennials and I have a, a couple of confused and I have a couple of Z's because I have six kids that span um, well over a decade. And it's interesting as I watch them, um, the Z's have watched the older children and said, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> right? Not because totally. they kind of watched what's yeah, happened. Right. And they've said, hmm. That's that. That's kind of weird, and so they're adapting. And it's I, my wife and I haven't changed, you know, our style and you know the way we were, were the culture of the home. Um, so, so we that's fascinating, and it, it kind of reminds me of our conversation with Blake Hudson um, and and sort of his background that we just did. It'll actually be released with yours next week. Um, so we got we kind of got to wrap it up. And this, first of all, thank you so much. Fascinating to get into this into topics that we don't get to talk about and hear about and, and educate ourselves. But how can we help you? How can we return the favor to you? Because you've been super generous with your time for us and, and for the listeners. Well, I think, uh, you know, when I went got up at AISP and I, I, I was so grateful for Bob Perkins to, to give us a voice to say, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to further the field of sales and you want to find a way to kind of give back Find the local university that's either in that sales education foundation list or in the, in the University Sales Center Alliance and call up the professor who's directing that and say, how can I get involved? Now, the bigger programs like a UTD, the University of Houston, the Florida States of the world, their phones are ringing off the hook. I mean, I get about 300 to 500 calls a year, but my colleagues that are sitting down like Louisiana State or Central Michigan who are for trying to build one, man, they, they'd love you to reach out and say, hey, what can I do with my time? What can I do with resources? How can I harness the community? Because the more centers that are successful, the more deans will say, oh my goodness, we need to make this happen. And um, it's kind of a chicken egg challenge, right? If, if we have the best companies in the country coming to business schools and asking for sales, then the deans will go, hmm, so this isn't just door to door. Not that door to door is bad, but you know, you are looking at people who are trying to get into a profession. And so B2B sales is a tough area that requires a little bit more education, maybe. Um, and so I think that's that's the ask I would have is that people become aware that sales programs around the country are really doing something significant. And by the way, when you do it, you win because you build a better network with the other people who are showing up to these events. And you, you can also hire, but one of my, one of my great friends, Mike Hart once told me, he said, you need to encourage people to give back, not always to recruit. And then if they get to recruit, they, they can win a second time, but the first win should be to give back. And I think you'll learn a lot because we're trying to learn with you. I don't think, I, I think most of my colleagues would say we're collaboratively learning with the field on what's next, so. 
Sounds like there's a guest lecture opportunity in your future, Richard. <laughs> All he's got to do, I'll ask. He can ask, I'll ask. So. Well, Never. Richard, any Richard Scott, anytime you're in Dallas, you let me know and I'll let you cameo in class. Oh, that would be so fun. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I would love to do that. Awesome. I would love to do that. Thanks so much for spending some time with Thanks. me, Doctor. This you has bet. been great. Thanks. Take care. Cheers. You too. Cheers.